Now, we all know that there are people who talk about nothing else but the second coming. And very often they have elaborate schemes and they, they fall into the regular pitfall of trying to calculate when it will happen and to give a blow-by-blow account of what will transpire. I'm not going to venture into eschatology too much this morning, and I'm quite sure there are people who have different views. Let's not get lost on, on some of the differences we have, but focus on what is absolutely important. Because there are eccentrics, and because nonsense has been spoken, and because possibly we preachers tend to focus on certain things, the truth of the matter is that we have tended by and large to neglect the teaching of the second coming. Fortunately, preaching through a book like First Thessalonians, it's impossible to do that if you stay with the text. You see, clearly, very clearly, the second coming of Jesus was and is an essential part of the gospel. The early church proclaimed not only that Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead, they declared that he was seated at the right hand of the Father and he was already king, but there was a program underway and ultimately would return as king at his second coming. Now, it's very easy for us to preach a truncated gospel. In other words, to take certain things that we know are true and are glorious and to put all our attention into those and to proclaim those and neglect other aspects of the gospel. What we're talking about here is not an optional add-on. It's something that was proclaimed when the gospel was preached. Jesus had come. Jesus had died for our sins. He had been raised from the dead. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. He was busy now through the work of the Holy Spirit on earth, and he would return again to complete what he had started. So the gospel has both present and future dimensions. It has cosmic as well as personal dimensions. It is horizontal as well as vertical. And as Paul says to the Romans, he says creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God has a plan for this world. He hasn't written the world off in its entirety and just saved a few. He has a plan, a universal plan. He has a plan for the future. And we look forward to that. One day, evil will be eliminated from this universe. Forever. Never to recur. God will complete the work he started the kingdom will come in its fullness. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God, of our Lord, and of his Christ. Now, this is a glorious teaching, 
It's an indispensable part of the good news, not an optional add-on, as we said. And it is as true today as ever it was. This is what Paul had preached at Thessalonica. But it is also clear as we read that in Paul's absence, some of the new Christians at Thessalonica, and remember these were new young Christians, had got things out of perspective. As I said last week, Andrew focused upon a couple of the attendant issues that had had arisen. For example, there were those who were saying, if Jesus is coming back, why on earth are we wasting our time working? Uh, We'll rather quit our jobs. Now, of course, I don't think that it was the eschatology that was wrong. I think they were just downright lazy. And this was a great excuse. We stopped working, and they were becoming a burden on others, as often happens when people are lazy. But in addition to that, there were those who were concerned because of people who had died. They were going to miss this great event of the Lord's return. And what would happen, what would become of them if they had died before Jesus returned? And Andrew dealt with those last week. There was a third issue. And that's where our focus is today. Ah, Jesus is coming back again. But we don't know when. Can we know just when he is coming? Surely that would be helpful to us, some would say. And we can then plan accordingly and can make sure we are ready. It may be, I think it probably is so, that there were some who were teaching that not all Christian believers would actually make the cut. In other words, they were real Christians, but might not be good enough or ready enough to meet the Lord. They call this the partial rapture theory nowadays. Apparently, there was some fear-mongering. Now, I'm inferring this from the text, as I'll I'll point out. But it, it sounds certainly as though some believed only certain Christians would come. Now, let me ask you here. When you hear that someone is going to say something about the second coming, there might just be some who get a little apprehensive. Because every time you've heard anybody speak about the second coming of Jesus... There's that note of fear and not being ready. And very often, in the past certainly, when it was preached, it was almost preached with a threat that you had to get ready. And you can quote scriptures to that effect as well. And so many people have this rather negative idea. And they're almost afraid of the Lord's return. Now just listen to how Paul addresses this matter. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know, and there's an emphatic you there, uh, you could do that because usually the subject was contained in the verb, but if you wanted to emphasize the you, you put the pronoun there as well as the verb. So it could read like this. 
for you yourselves know accurately, very well, you know, you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He had obviously told them this. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So that doesn't seem too positive a picture. He had told them about this. Now people are speculating. He's saying, you know, we've discussed this. Jesus is coming and his coming will be like a thief in the night. It will be sudden and it won't necessarily be very pleasant because the day of the Lord, when it arrives, is a day of setting the record straight, of dealing with issues uh, and injustice and sin and rebellion. So everybody around knew that. The day of the Lord was a theme in the Old Testament. Amos was one of the early prophets. By the time he was prophesying, People were already talking about the day of the Lord. And there are many references to it in the Old Testament. Come to the New Testament, it is taken for granted when they write about the day of the Lord that people knew essentially, essentially what it was. A day of reckoning, a day of sorting out our mess, a day of justice, a day in which we move from this present age in which evil so often dominates to the perfect new day. That was the day of reckoning. But, far from being apprehensive and fearful, we who are God's children can be encouraged and motivated. I would be particularly happy this morning if there's someone here and there's almost a negative attitude towards the Lord's return, who feels deeply encouraged because of what is written in this passage. But you, says Paul, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. Now that little word, all, is probably, I hope I'm not reading too much into it, but is an indication to me, because Paul didn't need to use it. And in fact, he throws it to the front of the sentence, which was a way of emphasizing its importance. All of you who are God's children are children of the light. That's a Hebraism, that you belong to the light. You're children of the light and children of the day. So you don't have to be unaware or live in craven fear that the Lord's coming will be a day of disaster for you. And it is here that Paul then links up with one of the great motifs of Scripture. Now, we're not going to engage in a full-on Bible study here, but just track with me... uh, because I think this is, uh, this is of significance and it certainly helps us to understand this passage of Scripture. You know that we always tell you, you must read Scripture in context. Don't grab a verse and just make it mean anything. You read what is around it. 
But there is also a wider context, and the wider context is the whole of Scripture. There are themes that are pursued right through Scripture. And one of the themes that is gloriously pursued is the theme of darkness versus light and day versus night. And so let's just track this without, and I'm being pretty selective because there's much about this in Scripture. As we look at this, we notice in the first place that the Bible says God is light. This is the message, says John in his first letter, that we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Probably the best uh, Greek professor, teacher today in the world is a guy called Bill Mounts. And I remember him trying to, to explain the force of this passage. And he, he translated it like this. It said, it read, This is the message we have heard and declared to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then he adds that little Greek word, udumea, no ways. It's that emphatic. God is light, no darkness at all. Now, if we look at the bookends in Scripture, you go to the very first book, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness, darkness was over the surface of the earth. Yes, we're talking about a physical creation. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, first command, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning day one. Go right to the end of Scripture. John sees the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And then he writes these words. He says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And he adds in the last chapter of the Bible, there will be no more night. There will be no need to light a, for the light of a lamp or for the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. So there's this picture. Now you see how this plays out as God's revelation proceeds in Scripture. For example... There is this wonderful promise in the book of Isaiah when, in fact, it's a very dark time in the history of Israel. And uh, Isaiah is, is explaining this darkness that can almost be felt. He says, Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are the regions where the Sea of Galilee was. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the 
nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then he adds, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now we see the fulfillment of that. Because in a, in a way that deliberately connects with Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When John writes his prologue, he says, in the beginning, same words, in the beginning, when God initially created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All very intentional. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The light has come. Then Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, and I'll just flip over some of these passages, he speaks about the kingdom of light and adds, for God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. You see this again in Ephesians chapter 5, the transference into the kingdom of light into the daytime, out of night into day. But perhaps the most relevant passage when we're talking about light and darkness and day and night is found in Romans chapter 13. And so says Paul, do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So here's the picture. The current age in which we live is described for the purposes of this motif as the age of night. It is an age in which there is still darkness. But the day is about to dawn. And as those who have been enlightened by God's grace, rescued from the dominion of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of light, we are already citizens of the kingdom of light. George Eldon Ladd wrote a book entitled The Presence of the Future. He explained that God does not in fact fully countenance this present age. That's why he's working to change it. But his age is the future age. And he speaks about the future's incursion into the present. And you and I are part of that. Because we belong to the future, to the future day. And yet we're here now in the age of night. And the idea is that our light should shine 
And the wonderful reality is that when light and darkness meet, light always wins. Many years ago, I was uh, in the United States, and I managed to buy a little plaque, which I've had ever since. And uh, it sits there and confronts me every day of my life. Uh, This little plaque, 99 U.S. cents. When you could get $1.33 U.S. cents for one rand. Can you ever imagine that? And there it is. And it says there, all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. The light is always stronger than the darkness. The darkness is a negative entity, if you can get such a thing. Where light and darkness come into contact, the light must dispel that darkness. And that's what we're here for at this moment. Now this uh, perspective helps us to appreciate what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians in this passage. He says, yes, indeed, the day of the Lord is coming. It is certain and it is going to catch those who are currently living in darkness by surprise. But you, brothers and sisters, he says, are not in darkness so that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are all. Again, he throws that word to the front of the sentence. All is the first word in that sentence in the original. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Paul didn't even have to include that adjective, but he put it there, and I suspect he did so because there were some who thought that certain Christians would make the cut and others wouldn't. And you might just be one of those Christians who wonders, you know the Lord, but you wonder whether you will make the cut. Well, here you have a very clear statement. We are all. No exclusions here. We're talking about God's children in this situation. So he didn't even have to include it But he did. He makes it very clear. If you are God's child, you can face the day of the Lord with humble, grateful confidence. Because it doesn't depend on your pedigree, as important as it is, as we shall see, that we should follow the Lord in genuineness. In fact, it says here, And I think Paul does this deliberately as well. He says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Now this this most encouraging truth should serve as a major motivation for us in our lives. As always, Paul does not say, this is how you've got to behave, and if you behave like this, then you'll be all right. Rather, he first of all gives us the facts 
the good news about what God has done for us. And then he tells us how we should act in the light of those facts. Here's the good news. This is what you are because of Jesus. And this is what God has given to you. Now, this is what you ought to do. This is how you ought to behave. And embedded in this passage, there are four related exhortations, which I'll touch on very briefly. In the first place, he says, be alert. Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake. We don't know when the Lord will return, but we live our lives in the light of the glorious fact that things will not always be as they are, that Jesus is coming back and he's going to sort this mess out. Somebody once said, and I'm not sure because I couldn't verify this, that D.L. Moody was asked, I think we quoted D.L. Moody last week, Andrew, D.L. Moody was asked, if he were to know that the Lord was coming in just a few days, I haven't been able to verify this, what would he do differently from what he would be doing if he didn't know that fact? And his answer was, why, I do exactly what I'm going to do now. I'm living in the light of the expectation of his return. I'm living my whole life like this. So he's not going to go rushing out, speaking to everybody. He's already doing that. He's already living for the Lord. But we're to be awake that the day doesn't take us by surprise. We're living in the light of that day. Second thing he says is be sensible. Now, make sure, in other words, you're in touch with reality. In fact, the word that is used here is a word that I don't know if it has that kind of effect in you, but it, it's not a word that I, I don't enjoy some of the connotations. It's the word sobriety. He says, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Because, you see, sober to some of us means dull and dour. No sense of humor and a uh, little bit miserable almost. That's not what it means here. It means be self-controlled. Live realistically in view of the real status quo, in view of what is happening. Other few months ago, I, I was uh, accompanying Ruth to a stationary shop in uh, Canal Walk, and I saw this book on philosophy, and I've always had an interest in philosophy, many years since I did it. But I picked up this book for only 200 rand, really good book, and it goes right through from Plato and Aristotle right to the present uh, deconstructionists and so on. And, and it's just a short article on each of them. And what you, because you're reading them all, one after the other, you come to realize that as intelligent and as admirable as these people are, for discussing the things that they are. It just seems to go round and round in circles. Nobody has ultimate solutions. They, they're trying to understand what came first and how it operates. Some are atheistic. Others are theistic. Uh, and then you realize, wait a moment, not because we're smart, because Jesus said, he prayed thanking the Father that he had 
reveal these things to babes. We have revelation, so we have a realistic picture. We, we have a roadmap. We know where things are going. We don't need to know all the details, but we know what God is dealing with in this present age. So we have something to look forward to. That, I think, is what's captured by the thought of sobriety here. Be sober, not like a drunk person who staggers around, not knowing what the outcome will be, but be sober as well. The third thing that is uh, mentioned here is keep your guard up. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober again, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We are people of the day, but we are living currently, for the time being, at night time. So we're in a battle. At times the darkness will close in on us, and that shouldn't surprise us. Until the great day arrives, we will experience assaults. Assaults on our spiritual lives. Sometimes those assaults will come almost from within us as well. But Paul specifies three virtues, and he does so uh, under the figure of, of armor, which he subsequently develops in Ephesians 6. And he mentions his three favorite virtues, faith, love, and hope. Mention them right at the beginning of the letter as well. And then fourthly, remember we simply cannot go it alone. We are people of the day, but we are living at night time. And nowadays, there's so much private religion around. It was John Wesley who said the Bible knows nothing about solitary religion. Nothing at all. Because as Christians, we need each other. And we cannot be individualists sort of collecting together at certain times. We are dependent. It was never God's intention that Christians should go it alone and have sort of fellowship. We need, and there is this other word that keeps cropping up in the New Testament, alelus, one another. And it's used right here as well. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. Let me conclude. I certainly hope that you are encouraged by Paul's perspective in God's word concerning the coming of Jesus. For far too many of God's children, the second coming, as we've said, is associated with apprehension and even fear. There are also some abominable movies that make matters worse, that have nothing to do with God's word, but are furtive imagination and counterproductive. Yes, we must approach the day with reverence and with the utmost seriousness, but pointing to some seemingly ominous developments, our Lord said, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Paul describes for us Jesus' return as the blessed hope 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you know, the final words of Jesus in the Scriptures, in the book of Revelation, yes, I am coming soon. And our fitting response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What a day.